Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. You are listening to part two of a conversation with Andre Tormel. Point that that you've just drawn upon relative to the the graph height and weight charts and what is normal at a given age um, leads me into uh, another thought or another another question. I think that your uh, you have an entire section of your uh, book on the normal child, and I very much appreciated how you broke it down analytically into three parts that are interrelated, uh, mm-hmm. an inquiry into what is average, an inquiry into what is healthy, an inquiry into what is acceptable, and that these are related, but they are distinct parts of the normalizing project. And mm-hmm. one reason that I appreciate that breakdown, that analysis so much, is that it it brings us to the point where we're trying to understand what the normal is and how it operates rather than just castigating or criticizing normalization, which is, of course, easy to do because it seems such an affront to freedom and individualism. It's easy in a liberal culture to to not like normalization. It sounds like a bad word, but there's more than just identifying it as either good or evil, but to saying, hey, this is how normalization has operated. This is how it functions so that we can understand it. Um, I know that's not much of a question, but I would I'd just like to hear some more about how you worked through the analytics of the normal child. Yeah. Um, first, we, we have to to uh, be very conscious that if normal and normalization is highly suspicious today and criticized yes. today, that was not the case back a hundred years ago. Yes. A hundred years ago, I mean, normal and normalization was something new first, and for both parents and pediatricians and psychologists, it was a kind of a discovery, and that was the introduction of scientific investigation and scientific research in the field of childhood, and that was a big step forward. Mm-hmm. At that period of time, at that period of time, and I must uh, say as well that 
those three types or those three forms of normal, what's average, what's healthy, and what's acceptable, didn't come at the same time. Yeah. The first was, of course, the statistical representation of normal. You are normal when you are in the average development. Mm-hmm. Second, you are normal when you are healthy. If you are sick, you are not normal. I'll come in a moment to that. And the third one is is more social. What are among various children behavior? What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? Mm-hmm. But let me go back to the healthy. The the, the the very important book that you know that I read when I was doing this research is a book by a, a French philosopher, epistemologist, who was as well a, a, a physician. He was both. And his name is Georges Canguilhem. He was professor at the Collège de France. And he published, after Second World War, his, his PhD thesis called The Normal, I, I translate, and The Normal and the Pathological. And it had a great influence and was a teacher of Michel Foucault. Yes, he was a teacher of Foucault as well. Exactly, he was a teacher of Foucault. And I think that Bourdieu as well uh, was a student of Canguilhem. Not sure about that, but I think so. And so, this distinction that Canguilhem uh, uh, points to between what is healthy and what is uh, uh, pathological, hmm? healthy being normal, and pathological is everything that is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Hmm? From from a medical standpoint, hmm? so when you have a cancer, you're not healthy, and you're on the pathological track, hmm? and and. Probably when you have, I, I would not say that when you when you have a headache you're you're on a pathological track, but you, when you have serious health problem, either as a child or as an adult, you are on the pathological track. You are kind of excluded from the healthy track, and you're not normal. Mm-hmm. So that was. Very helpful for me to try to to uh, formulate a second, uh, I would say, representation of what is normal. Yeah. Beside, you know, the statistical representation. Uh huh. You can be. So you, we can think normal above the the, the bell curve. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely important to start thinking about a normal child, you know, beside and above the normal curve. Mm-hmm. And it it is it is a, a the same thing 
with with the 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 uh, acceptable behavior huh? the acceptable behavior and the transgression and everything about, around this came with the rise of the delinquency problem yeah uh, we could talk a lot about that you know when it it is linked in, in a certain way it is, it is linked with compulsory schooling. When various states in Europe and in, in America started with this question of compulsory schooling, the first one being Denmark, mm-hmm. and in Canada, uh, uh, I think that the first one was Ontario, but I'm absolutely sure that the last one was Quebec. <laughs> you know, uh, compulsory schooling would take children out of factories. Huh? Yes, which, which is uh, important. But children of out of factories or out of the field work would not immediately go to school. Some of them would stay in the street. Yeah. Gather into gangs and start doing mischievous things. Yeah. That's the, I would say, the emergence of the problem of delinquency. And the problem of delinqu- delinquency, I'm, I'm going very fast here, huh? and the problem of delinquency would make uh, various people uh, 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 defining what are the acceptable behavior for children and what are the uh, unacceptable behavior? But what you're doing, if I could interject, what you're doing is you're um, structurally situating ideas that, uh-huh. that something like the normal is not only protein and that it has multiple layers, that part of how it comes to exist is not just through a formal statement, but there had to be situations created by ultimately dependent on other statements, acts of parliament to create factory acts, and that's a in Ontario that happens in the 1880s, and that produces a situation where you can actually begin to see uh, youths who are um, not in school and not in the factories as delinquent, and that changes what is sayable about uh-huh. abnormality. Yeah, and and so that so that, this is about making meaning. It's not that it's detached from language or prior to discourse, but it means that that discourse itself is not just captured in grammar or words that it's historically structured, takes us away from a simple assignment that this is either a good thing or a bad thing. I want to ask you about another uh, a phrase that you use. Uh, it's captured in that the clause of developmental thinking as a cognitive form. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to I, I ask you to explain what is a cognitive form. Because, again, this is another word that's related to or a phrase that's related to the concept of an idea, but it's but it's more than an idea. 
Yes, it is more than an ID. A cognitive form, I would say, is, is, is a way to formulate what the Marxist used to say, in, in other terms, of course, mm-hmm. and from another epistemological point of view, what the Marxists used to call hegemonic mm-hmm. thought. Okay? So what I mean by developmental thinking as a cognitive form is that, let's say, around World War II, developmental thinking became an hegemonic way of thinking about children, way of thinking and behaving about children. That means that it was difficult, very, very difficult, to think in another, to think and behave in another way or in an alternative way yes toward children yeah. simply more complicated than that it's explained I took a whole chapter in the book to explain that <laughs> so I but if the process of hegemony is the ability for uh, a, a dominant body of thought to incorporate counter-statements into itself so that it those counter-statements then support uh, the larger ideology or body of thought. If, yeah. if that's what how Gramsci defines hegemony and, and Raymond Williams works with hegemony as well, part of what is, I think, implied by so much of what you said are saying and and is then named by the concept cognitive form is that you you can't simply make a counter statement that opposes uh, a a particular way of thinking about children uh-huh. that there's just more going on in the construction of ideas yeah and they, you can't simply contradict them. That there's, no. you have to produce other ways of imagining, of circulating, of producing texts, of speaking, and that is, no individual can do that, and it can't be done all at once. No, no, exactly, exactly. Let, let me, let me just tell you, uh, I interviewed a woman, uh, who, uh, had her first child, at the end of World War II, in 1945. And she told me two very important things. First, she told me that her pediatrician was very strict and very authoritarian toward her. That the pediatrician told her, you must feed your baby every four hours not three hours and 45 minutes <laughs> it is every four hours if he starts crying after three hours and 45 minutes let him or her cry because it would be good for uh, <laughs> for its voice easy to <laughs> say from the pediatrician's office or something like that 
And she said that she raised her child having one of those, you know, a, a book, book uh, uh, how to raise your children on one hand and holding her baby on the second with the second hand or arm, you know. The, the, the image is, is quite interesting and quite strong, I think. Can you imagine a woman having her first child and let's see, a month or two or three months, and she's holding the child in, in her arm, and in her other arm, she's having one of those manuals, you know, the uh, uh, how to raise your children, page 28 or page 75. <laughs> But what should I do when, when he is reacting like this or that? I think all of us who are parents can understand, though, how complicated that situation is, particularly exactly. with the first child, because you're reading those books and you don't want to uh -huh. make any mistakes. Exactly. You don't want to make any mistakes because if you make a mistake, your child would be completely out of track. Or <laughs> yeah, it will be outside the normal. Yeah, outside the normal and became and becomes one of those, uh, you know, uh, 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 child with incredible problems and everything. Huh? Yes, that's so. So if if we go back, huh, you know, I, I think that by World War II, uh, up until probably the 70s, uh, uh, developmental thinking was a cognitive form because it was impossible to think and to behave. Uh, outside of this uh, paradigm, the psychologist used to to work with uh, uh, a kind of a postulate. The, the first postulate then is that there is a universal child, mm -hmm. which is a, a sociologist cannot accept at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We know, as sociologists, that there are no universal child. The, the teenage crisis is typically a Western problem, and is typically produced by the way that we uh, uh, raise our children. But there's, but the the strength of the universalist argument is still is still there. Um, I have to wade through in casual conversation almost on a daily basis somebody telling me about the teenage brain, that that dictates X, Y, and Z. And, you know, most of the time you're polite. You don't want to get into an, an academic debate with someone who's passing you on the street, but it's it's a sort of constant media barrage Yeah, yeah, I, I do agree with you. It is very, very powerful. It's common sense knowledge. Yeah. Huh? And it is powerful because it's common sense knowledge. But we have to uh, make a convincing argument against the universal child or against such a thing as a, a teenage brain or something like that. Absolutely. I, I travel a lot to Brazil for various reasons. I speak Portuguese and everything. And when I go in, in, into a, a, a Brazilian favela, you know, in a, in, in a big city, and I speak with people there, and I interact with people there, you, you can't 
absolutely you can't uh, uh, receive the argument of a universal child. Children in the streets in Brazil do not behave like children in upper middle class in Toronto or Montreal. And let me just give you this argument, this from a, an example that I'm going to word for you. I used to go and eat in the city where I, in the northern, uh, nor, northeastern, northeastern uh, city of Brazil called Teresina, mm-hmm. which is a, a city that is about the size of Quebec City, uh, less than one million people. I used to go and, and, and eat in one place, and just next to that place, there was a, a, a little boy living in the street. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He didn't even know his own age because he didn't even know when he was born, which day and year he was born. Yes, and he was completely illiterate. Never went to school. He was, I would say, nine, perhaps ten, around nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And he was selling on the street corner various little things, you know. That this type of, of, of children in the street sell. So I was interacting with him one day and I decided to buy one of those little things and the cost was something like 25 cent Canadians, Canadian money. And I gave him a big bill, something like a, a $20 bill. Uh-huh. And he gave me the exact change. <laughs> and I start arguing with me. You're wrong. You gave me less than you should give me. And, and, and he and he start arguing with me. And, and we developed this argument for about 10 minutes. I gave you the exact change. You gave me 25 cents. You gave me a $20 bill. And I gave you back $19 and 25 cents. Exactly. I mean, this little guy, boy, was illiterate. Never went to school living in the street, and he could calculate exactly the change he had to, to yeah. give me back. He was at home on the street, to use on the highest hex phrase, exactly. that great book. He is learning a few things in the street. Yes. And, and, and he could calculate this. That, I think it's an, a fascinating example. And, uh, of course, a 10-years-old boy or girl from upper middle class Toronto or Montreal could do the same thing, but he would have been in the school for four years at uh, at least, no? And 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 quite frankly, is very unlikely to be in that situation because you can sort of abstractly say a person can do X, but yeah. but life is not let, lived in the abstract. It, no. It's only lived in the situations that we're likely to be in. And so this boy could perform that exchange and has performed that exchange undoubtedly hundreds of times. So exactly. that it's, it's not outside of who he is. It is part of who he is. And that's what we're really after anyway. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, we're not after things that can be created in the laboratory were after things that actually exist in the world. One of the things that's a treasure about 
a historical sociology of childhood, and I hope people listening to this will read it, is that it is a, it's a work that is so situated in the specifics and the historical evidence and the archives. And then I want to conclude by asking you what you're working on uh, now and what's coming, what's coming next. An historical sociology of childhood in Quebec, uh, working from the archives, of course. So it, it's, it's the other, the, the 2008 book, but applied to Quebec children. Okay. And I found a few very interesting things, and we probably going to conclude our conversation with this. One of the most fascinating things that I found is that over a century, uh, Quebec orphanages from the period that they were created uh, around 1860 until more or less the end of the 1950s. Well, the orphans were a minority. Mm -hmm. You would find various other types of children that were not orphans, but they were put into orphanages. Yeah. So that is a fascinating question that I'm dealing with in this book that I hope will come out in the, in the next months, let's say six or seven months. Uh, yeah. 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 Because it's an institution of poverty. Yes. Yes. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Huh? But it's, it's an, and, and I'm trying to, to, to do some thinking about, uh, uh, the elasticity of, of the category of orphan. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate um, this conversation. You you have a, a, a good day. Thank you very much. Same for you. Au revoir. Au revoir.